Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by Dr. Jonathan Ward, the founder of the Atlas Organization and 2018 Next Generation National Security Fellow at the Center for New American Security. Dr. Ward has studied the rise of China for more than a decade and recently published China's Vision of Victory, a book which outlines China's goals for global dominance and how the U.S. should respond to this threat. Dr. Ward, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. So I read your book. I found your book because I was listening to a podcast that new speaker Gingrich did for you with his relatively new podcast series. Can you first talk about how did you become a China expert? Because I think you lived there for a while. Talk a little bit about did you study Chinese in school? How did you become interested in China? And did you live overseas? And what were some of the things you learned? Right. So I got into the China picture over a decade ago as an undergrad at Columbia. I did Russian and Chinese language, so I was very into foreign languages. Oh, my word. Right. I wound up spending about 10 years overseas in Russia, China, India, Latin America, and the Middle East, learning a variety of foreign languages, including two Arabic dialects. Um, so really was immersed for a while in the whole global picture. How many languages do you speak? Uh, I peaked at about nine. Now I only have five. So You've got to be I, kidding me. Yeah. I kept, so, what yeah. Do you, so you speak Chinese, English, Russian. Uh, Arabic, Spanish, and English. And, but, and you used to speak some others? In the past, I learned Indonesian on cargo ships when I was in my early 20s and uh, could get around in most of the Romance languages. Laotian oh, my goodness. So, yeah. So, boring life. Boring life. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> so, then I wound up at Oxford, where I was initially admitted for Russia-China relations because I had both languages. And I moved into China-India relations because I'd lived in India when I was younger. So, that basically gave me access to all of the Communist Party archives in Beijing, the diplomatic archives. So when via I, Oxford. Via Oxford. That's right. And that gave me an understanding of essentially the origins of... Oh, because you were focused on the India. If I recall from the podcast, you focused your area of study on the China-India conflict. Correct. Yeah. In the 50s? Right. So the rise and fall of China-India relations and the border war of 1962. And, and did they let you in and let, get access to the files? I got to see uh, a whole lot of the diplomatic archives. They were declassified at the time. Then while I was there, Xi Jinping put them all back uh, behind doors. Really? Yeah. So I was actually there when that happened. So you, like one day you showed up and it was closed? That's exactly right. Literally what happened? What it was was they took all the documents off the computers. They were digitally transcribed and, and archived. And you could go in there and read them all, take notes, all of that. And then one day I came in and they said it was a system update. And they were gone. They've been gone ever since. Really? And have you talked to people, the archivists? What do they say? They just I, kind of shrug their shoulders? I don't know. Yeah, at that time, they were just sort of giving you a story. Oh, that's ridiculous. Mm. Okay, so you studied some of the conflict between China and India because of your India background. And so what were some of the things you learned as part of that process of the China-India conflict? Because I think it, it relates to some of the things that you're, we're going to talk about later. It does. I mean, it, it allowed me to understand the sort of origins of what the Chinese Communist Party today calls the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Back then, it was the idea of the new China, that China had stood up and essentially that it wouldn't tolerate strategic rivals. That was the nature of the conflict with India. It really was sort of came out in the context of the border war. But what it really was, was um, the Communist Party being very uncomfortable with India as a strategic actor that could challenge them along all kinds of fronts as the two nations became independent. And can India challenge China? At the time, in certain ways, yes. I mean, the Communist Party was cer certainly afraid of it. And today, I think that's still very much a problem for the CCP. Really? Yeah. 
So you did this research, and then the archives closed, but then right. you ended up living in China for a while. Yeah, I, I was in China my first year um, overseas after undergrad years. I studied at Beijing University, then backpacked around Xinjiang and Tibet. So I spent about three months out in um, Xinjiang and Tibet, um, on one hand on a motorcycle out in Xinjiang deserts. On another By hand, yourself? Uh, we, my cousin was with me at the time, so it was a little uh, safer. Then we had to hitchhike through Tibet, hide from the PLA at checkpoints and such. And it was very a good time for 20 22-year-old, but I learned a lot about the dark side of the country. Talk about the dark side of the country. What is that? I think it's it's the system of repression that's been around really since the beginning of the People's Republic of China, since the communist takeover of um, you know China as as a nation state. And in Xinjiang and Tibet, I mean, what we hear a great deal about today in the Xinjiang mass surveillance state, I mean, you could see a, a sort of analog version of that back then. It was quite clear that the Uyghurs were not going to have a very bright future. So, and did you spend time with the Uyghurs? I did, yeah. And what do the Uyghurs want? It's a tough thing. I, I mean, I think they, they'd like to have some – they're not going to get much they'd of anything. Like, they'd the like to have party. their language and their religion respected at the very least? Well, right now, I mean, their culture is being systematically destroyed. And they're living in a, essentially a digital totalitarianism, the likes of which the world has never seen. I think it's incredibly important that the United States and the remainder of the democratic world focus on this and continue to shed light on it. And that we recognize that the Communist Party's lies about this that system and its re-education camps and you know, organ harvesting and, and forced torture and all of these things. I mean, those are features of this regime that have been around for quite a while, minus the digital side, which is only now coming to play. Yeah, my colleague Amy Laird just published a report. I think you may have seen it on the treatment of minorities in China. I think right. this has just come out in the last five days or so. So I think you were ahead of the curve on these issues. So then you lived in China for a while. And then what prompted you to write this book, China's Vision of Victory? It was really the sort of sum of all of my, at that point, a decade of experience of studying China, not just in China, but all around the world when I was living in Middle East or Latin America, or really even Europe as a doctoral student at Oxford. I was just sort of seen that this was really a global issue. This was not a regional issue. I mean, this is a country with global ambitions, with a global economic footprint that aspires to have at least an intercontinental military footprint. And at the time that I drafted it and wrote it in 2017, I was very concerned that our conversation in the United States, and I just moved back to the United States at that point, I was concerned that we weren't going to get the picture on China. And then, of course, in 2018, the U.S. policy began to change. What do you think there was a reflection? Was that a reflection of the national security strategy? I think so. I think I think the NSS, the NDS, I mean, these are the foundations, I think, um, of an emerging American grand strategy. I mean, all the other documents that are being released in the White House, the bills that are in consideration in Congress, I mean, I do think that we're in a period um, and I say this as a historian that in, in many ways resembles the 1945 to 48 period where you come out and, and realize that a country you thought was your partner at that time, the USSR in the Second World War, is in fact your most challenging adversary you've ever had. I think the government is reorienting. I think the business community doesn't get it yet and the finance community doesn't get it. And I'm very concerned about that. So where is the American business community? Where is the American financial community? I mean, based on our longstanding strategy of engage and hedge, which still has remnants today, you know, it was basically about business would go and engage with China. The military would hedge. National security would hedge. You know, the problem is that that engagement piece, the Chinese really seized hold of that. They brought business in, essentially tied them in, in a sense to the destiny of China, to the building of China, to the reverse engineering of the U.S. superpower and the illicit building of, of China into a technological advanced nation through theft and coercion. And it's going to be very difficult to disentangle our business community and their economic incentives across the strategic lines that matter, particularly in emerging technologies. So talk about what your thesis of your book is. What the book really does is it lays out all the primary evidence 
all the primary documents that explain the vision of the CCP. And it does that in a context that shows us, um, based on primary evidence, that this far predates Xi Jinping, that it's a global strategy, not a regional strategy, that it's a military strategy, not an economic strategy, and yet that it's all based on this idea of realizing ultimately what they call essentially the full potential of a billion people under the power of this regime. I mean, they call it the invincible force of 1.3 billion people applied to the infinite stage of our era. So they essentially see themselves as running the world inevitably. And I think that's where you get a little bit of the sort of Marxist inevitability of history being on our side that has continued in the Communist Party. What's your reaction to that thesis? You've been studying this for a while. I'd rather be us than them. They got a lot of challenges. They do have challenges, but I, and I think the most significant challenge will be what the world does in response to China's rise by the time we really understand what the ambitions are of the Communist Party. I mean, I agree with that. And let me come back to that. But I would argue if you look at their demography, they've got this crazy one-child policy that in 1969, they had something like seven births per women. That's like, and the replacement rate's two. Today, it's either 1.7, 1.6, or even in places like Shanghai, it's like 1.4. They're, they're, they've dropped off a demographic cliff. I keep hoping and thinking that if we just don't get into a shooting war with them in the next 20 years, they're going to have the demographic dynamism of an Italy or a Portugal or Japan where they kind of run out of demographic gas. Isn't that the case? You know, the demographic side, I think, really only sets in 10 years from now. 10, be 15 yeah, years 10 or 20, 15 years So you're talking now. about potential continued ascendancy over a period in which they would surpass us in real terms economically. You're also still talking about potentially great productivity increases with emerging technologies and um, increasing urbanization. From, I mean, there's a great rural population that's still moving in. So I think you still can have a massive Chinese ascendancy for a decade, at least maybe two, maybe three. How much, that of st- how much of the statistics, though, are lies? Don't they lie about their growth rate and re- lie about the level of debt or they don't know? I think this is a s- real, real, real challenge. Right. I'm not questioning that. But isn't that the case? I mean, you hear these things. Now, maybe that's just us whistling in the dark in the graveyard. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, Mofcom statistics and much of what's generated by the government is, of course, man-made and incentivized to be- Kind of made up. Right. Exactly. However- you still have all kinds of investment banks, major consultancies. I mean, everybody who's really doing the hard math on this that do believe that China's on, on this increased right. track to prosperity. So I, I tend to look at that sort so of So you're thing buying that. You're, well, I think that it shouldn't be discounted. I mean, to me, I'm not, I wouldn't want to sit back and expect this thing to just change on its own. In the end, it's a massive situation that we're going to have to deal with. It's going to require, I think, many of the steps that are already being taken, many more steps going forward. And really, above all, the United States is going to have to lead a coalition of democracies to start to seal off the Communist Party's ambitions and prevent its path to ascendancy. That's going to be very difficult. We have to do it. So what you're saying in your book is that this is sort of China's manifest destiny? Yes. So what can we do about it? Right. And it's as they see it. I mean, the point of the book was to lay out the vision. You know, their not, vision. Their vision. Less so to discuss you what know, do we what, do what's about wrong it? with it. Well, or yeah. what's wrong with it. What we do about it, yes, I get into that a little bit. But it, I think if we work from an assessment of what they want, then we can think about what they're really getting done. And then we can start to form real actions. But if you said to me, what I think they really want is, this is Dan's crude view of it, but it seems to me that they've got two, three, or four million young people entering their workforce every year until they hit this demographic cliff. And they've cut some sort of implicit deal with their society saying, you stay out of politics, we'll take care of the politics, and we'll deliver jobs and growth and prosperity and stability. And as part of that, then the whole series of things kind of come from that deal. So 
It strikes me as if many of the arrangements that they have in Africa or parts of Latin America strike me as neo-colonial arrangements. And in some instances, it feels like they're just sticking a big straw into a number of countries and saying, what resources can I draw out of it <laughs> as quickly as possible to, in essence, enable the implicit deal that I have with my society? Yeah, I mean, there are elements that I would agree with. I mean, on one hand, China's overseas strategy and the Belt and Road, all of this, you know, we'd recognize that very easily in the 19th century as an imperial strategy. It's a map of the Chinese empire. And I think we have to understand that China, you know, prior to their ideology of the century of humiliation, they saw themselves as the dominant empire in their region. So they- I mean, they're the largest economy for I think it's fair to say at least 500 years before they kind of had some troubles. Sure, and isolated in their region and subject to all the you know sort of vicissitudes of the region. But today they want to take that identity and apply it essentially globally to the world. I just think that when the world understands that there, there's implicit in that lots of corruption, rule by law, not rule of law, easy reversion to one-child policy and sort of getting in people's personal business as it relates to how many babies you have, or um, looking the other way on sex-selective abortions. There's 70 million missing girls in in China. There was that article in The Economist, or or dirty water and dirty air and unsafe food, no civil society. So anybody who cares about human rights or cares about anything, any kind of progressive movement, try and have a protest in Beijing and see how well that works out for you. If you care about minority rights of any kind, that's probably not (laughs) high on the list. And lots of lies on the statistics, lots of fake numbers on the statistics. I just think that when people understand what they're really signing up for, they're not really going to want to sign up for it and, and say, I'm ready for, for China to be the global leading country and, and lead the world with their tastes and their predilections and their rule set, because their rule set is going to be not super interesting for large parts of the world, I think. I don't know what well, your reaction is Yeah, to I mean, I think the rule set is on display in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and in the rest of the society. Yeah, if you, if you like what's happening in Hong Kong, you'll love it when they, when they pull that stuff in all of Southeast Asia, right? Well, you know, if you give them infinite space to run and uh, an infinite runway. And if we really did wind up in the so-called Chinese century, I mean, something run by the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China. I mean, that's you're talking that's about. That's what the, we're talking that's about. That's what we're talking about. That's what they envision. See, I think there's sort of a series of things that have been sort of milestones here in Washington about China. I think one was the emergence of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. I think every member of the U.S. Congress knows what it is. They're not sure if you can get money from an ATM from the AIIB, but they know it exists and they're not sure they like it. I think every single member of Congress has heard of Belt and Road. They kind of know what it is. Again, they're not sure exactly what it is, but they know they don't like it. And I think every single member of Congress has heard about this port in Sri Lanka and they heard about that and they, they kind of know about it and they don't like it either. Yeah. They also know about the islands that they've turned into mm-hmm. stationary aircraft carriers for the People's Liberation Army, et cetera. So I just think there have been a series of wake-up calls here in, in Washington that I think your book had pretty good timing given sort of these milestones in addition, I think, to the national security strategy and some of the other accompanying documents. Is that are you buying that? Yeah, I think the U.S. government is waking up, but we still are going to need a national awakening on this issue. The society needs to this wake is, up. Our on society this. needs to get up, and our business community needs to get it because they're still out there building essentially the rise of China. 
and the allies need to get it. We need to get it together. So in your mind, part of the reason you wrote this book was to contribute to making that happen? Yes. Tell me about the reaction you've gotten to your book. It's largely been very, very positive. I've not really experienced, I mean, because it's essentially an evidence-based right. book. Right. No one's going to say you're wrong. Well, you can't. It's all the documents. Has anyone criticized your book? And if so, who and, and in what way? I love the book. So thank I you. It's great. Yeah. Thank you very much. I mean, I think there may be people for whom this concept is a little overwhelming, and which is why e- we- have, Because those folks have been too invested in an engaged strategy? Well, there's the engagement crowd. And I think that is its own thing. I mean, that's all, it's taken on a life of its own over the last 20 years. And Engage for the sake of engaging. Yeah. And by the time you're doing that, you're really a defender of the PRC. And I, I don't really know if that's so defensible at this point, particularly in light Especially of Especially what's happening in Hong Kong. I right. Mean, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, all the human rights pieces that have been swept under the rug. Yeah. I think at least in Hong Kong, you get a lot more media coverage of it. In the other, the other places, there's been more of a media blackout. Right. Exactly. I would argue that if the current president of Taiwan wins re-election, it'll be a direct function of the mistreatment of people in Hong Kong. Yes. That basically the Taiwanese voter says, well, I don't really like what's happening in Hong Kong. So how am I going to maximize my chances of not having what happened to Hong Kong happen here in Taiwan? I'm going to go with the current sitting president of Taiwan. I think that's the logic, I think, of a, of a Taiwanese voter. Do you, do you agree with that? I would agree with that. So you've gotten some pushback from, let's call it the engaged for engagement crowd. Any other critiques? I think people might think that my program of how we win is ambitious and difficult, which I think it is true on both counts. So talk about how do we win? Because I think I was with Senator Lindsey Graham about a year ago, and he asked a really interesting question. He said, I still don't know what winning with China looks like. Oh, yeah. so, what, so Jonathan, what does winning with China look like? It means winning the economic competition. So the only way to actually change the dynamics of U.S.-China competition is to go straight for what's actually making the rise of China happen, and that's the growth of their economy and the conversion of essentially their industrial economy into a high-tech economy. And we've got to start to, um, on one hand, compete in those domains, move supply chains away from China, build, I think, an alliance-based trading system. I mean, essentially, we, we didn't really finish the job in the Cold War. The two communist primary actors, one of them learned how to make money by integrating with the, the free world. And, and now we're going to have to rebuild the free world around them while cutting off certain avenues they have to their own um, technological and industrial progress. And if we're able to do that, which will be difficult in the short run, but in the long run, it will guarantee, I think, our continued existence as, a, you know, as the free world and overcoming this challenge from China while also maintaining military deterrence. Because I think in the end, you lose your deterrence on a long enough time frame in which China's rise and conversion to advanced industrial technology continues. And then uniting the democratic world. And the problem is China's been very successful at getting, you know, U.S. allies and um, contested nations to buy into their, if not their vision of the future, at least into the to commercial. The sidelines or? Well, to be commercially engaged. I mean, you saw this report that was just released this week that um, the Australian parliament had been attacked, cyber attacked. This was not really brought up because they were afraid of impairing trade relations. So those sorts of things, I mean, the leverage that China has over so many nations by throwing its economic weight around and by inducing people through trade, I mean, we're going to have to really push back on all of that and and find better trading relationships amongst each other. So let me ask you about if there were two or three things you'd like to see the administration, the current administration or the next administration do over the next two or three years, what would they be? Focus on the allies. I mean, I think any sitting president must understand that they're not just the leader of the United States, they're the leader of the free and democratic world. So we have to be sure that we're not treating our allies the same way that we're treating China. I mean, China's a genuine problem. Some of the methods that we're using against China, you know, have seemed to have 
come into negotiations with allies, and I think that's not the right thing to do. Building the allies as an economic community, while also integrating for, for greater sort of combat effectiveness and interoperability. Thinking globally about our alliance system, I mean, we have a Cold War sort of remnant where NATO doesn't really mix with Asia, and Asia doesn't really mix with NATO. We have to think differently now. I mean, China's a global actor. It's not the same as the theaters of the Cold War. So getting Europeans more involved in the Asian theater and Asians more involved in the European theater, I think will be incredibly important. And then focusing on our own economic growth, really investment in R&D, you know, rebuilding sort of our own productivity to the best that we can and reducing our dependency on this uh, relationship with China that's gone awry and uh, which we invested far too much in the last couple of decades. Years. Yeah, really. We've got to get our own thing together. So are you optimistic we're going to get our act together? I think we have to. I'd love to see the national will come together to realize that we're in a historic situation where the United States will have to work hard and come together, also politically. I think it's incredibly important that this remain a bipartisan issue and a unifying issue for the United States. Good. Well, Jonathan, this is really interesting. I congratulate you on your book. Uh, the book is called China's Vision of Victory by Jonathan D.T. Ward. I read it. I found it very interesting. Uh, I think it's gotten a lot of attention here in Washington, and I commend it to everybody listening to this podcast. Thanks, Jonathan, for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Dan. Great to Thanks. Hear. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 